welcome to the eight. I say this all the time, I know, but believe me, this is at a different level. I am very, very excited about this specific series because it is this specific book and this discussion that we're going to have at the eight and in life group is what made me fall in love with Jewish literature, with the Old Testament, with this, this, this story. I, let me just tell you, this story is filled with agony, pain, romance, sex, adventure, despair, the whole bit. Like this, I, I, even the subtitle of this series, if you, you see it on the graphic, a divine love narrative for Hollywood and edification. Once there is a Hollywood producer that gets their hands on this book, I promise you they're going to make lots of money on making a movie out of this, and you'll see clearly why in a little bit. So it is a divine love narrative for Hollywood and for edification. Sorry, should I scoot back? Okay. First question I want to ask. If you open your Bible app, you will not find a book called the Book of Tobit. Maybe some of you are like, Book of Tobit. I think like, is that, like, I, I don't know my Old Testament that well. Is, maybe it's in one of those smaller books. Like, I don't know much about the Old Testament, so where, where do I find that? If you open your Bible app, if you open, most of you, if you open your Bible at home, you will not find the Book of Tobit. So my first question, before we jump into this divine love narrative, why can't I find the book of Tobit in the Bible? Why can't I find the book of Tobit in the Bible? As the, the, the video that we just watched before kind of touched on it. But if we kind of look at the, 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 the love story, the narrative of Christianity, if we just look, after Jesus was with his disciples and after he ascended, what is clear from ancient manuscripts and, and in Scripture that the, the followers of Jesus would come together to break bread, that they would come together to break bread. And for 400 years, for 400 years, approximately 400 years, Christians did not have a formal collection of something called the Bible. For 400 years, Christians did not have something called the Bible in which we know it today. They had collections of random manuscripts of, of stuff from, from Jewish literature, some stuff that, that Paul the missionary wrote. They had some stuff that the first eyewitness John collected. So they had a wide array of different things, but it was never put together in a formal way. So they would come together liturgically and break bread, and they would read some of these manuscripts, some of these epistles, some of these things together. As the church continued to evolve and progress and move forward, it wasn't until about the year 400 at, at different councils, there was a, especially there was a big council in modern-day Tunisia, where the church said, okay, we need now to, to determine what books are going to be in the Bible and which books are not going to be in the Bible, which books lead to edification and which books are kind of supplemental or not necessary or straight up wrong. So the, the church had to come together at, and determine what books would be included and which books would not. The earliest church, which we know from around the year 400, vast majority of early church leaders understood that the book of Tobit is essential is canonical. Canonical mean it is the official book that needs to be in the Bible. So the church understood that the book of Tobit from the beginning is essential. It is part of the Holy Bible. But obviously, if you move forward and look at the printing press and, and technology, advancement in technology, the, the, the Protestant Reformation, just 500 years ago, they said, you know what? There's some books we just want to remove altogether. So this is why the printing press, New King James Version, the, the Bible that we most of us have at home, do not include the book of Tobit. Hopefully I did not lose you on just some historical background, but I just want us to understand before we jump into this divine love narrative, why you might not find it in 
your Bible. So many Reformed Protestant Christians would call this book to be apocrypha or, or deuterocanonical. Deuter These are just fancy words meaning saying they're not canonical, they're secondary canonical. They're, they're kind of on the side. They're not essential. But the most fullest versions, the fullest version of Christianity, the Orthodox Church, we see this as the Bible. The book of Tobit is one book in this library, in this collection, and which we know being called the Bible. You know, Father Nathaniel, if we say that we are followers of Jesus and we look at the manuscripts and record that we have of Jesus' life from the perspective of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we see the actions of the apostles and the leaders of the church, and we see their struggle and push as the church began to move forward, why on earth is the Old Testament a big deal? Like, why? Well, it's especially how God has looked in the Old Testament just looks so mean and it's so many weird stories Like shouldn't we just focus on the New Testament? Like wh wh why all the Old Testament? Like just let's just focus on the New Testament Valid question Okay We're not the first people on planet Earth. We're not the last We're not the first followers of Jesus and we're not the last God willing. So Why did the early church in the year 393 in, in, in the 4th century why did the early church say, hey, you know what? I, I got it. I know what we should do. Why did they all collectively agree that let us bind together the Jewish Bible with all the stuff we have of early Christianity? Why did they decide to bind together the Old Testament with the New Testament? They didn't call it Old Testament. They, and they said, why don't we bind the Torah? Why don't we bind these Jewish manuscripts and let us now staple it together with the New Testament? This gives us the holistic, collective, narrative, and love story of how humanity is saved. If I look collectively from, from Genesis, and if I continue through the records that we have of Jewish manuscript, which is the Old Testament, and I can see it, how it came to fruition through Jesus, all of this points to the romance. All of this points to the romance of how humanity was originally designed to be full, was originally designed to be an icon of God. But we, be, we drifted away, and we see a romance that, that God came to save us, to restore us, to redeem us. This is the narrative. This is the love story of the Bible. This is why the early church said, you know what? The, the Jewish scripture is essential because it gives us the collective view. Now, for us, the beautiful thing about you and me, we do not look at the Old Testament stories as we, as we do like my daughter does. Oh, a story of Noah, it's nice, and the two doggies, and the two whatever. We, look at, we don't look at these stories in an elementary form. Now, as we continue to progress and mature, now we look at these Jewish manuscripts, these Jewish scripture, through a Christological lens. Sorry for all the big words today, but why, what, what I mean by that? Now these stories, this narrative, I look at it through the eyes of Jesus. If he is the fruition and completion of the entire narrative of, of humanity and, and the divine, which is this romance, which is the Bible. Now I look at these stories through the lens of Jesus. How do I find Jesus in the story? How do I find edification in the story? Now the, the lens, the optics of how I view the Jewish Bible is completely different now. Now it's not just purely history. Now it's not just nice stories for fifth graders. Now it is life. Now I see in it, I, now I view it through the optics, through the lens of a Christological lens. Hopefully I didn't lose you so far. There was an early Christian father by the name of St. Ambrose of Milan. So he is from Italy. 
He said, he said this in the fourth century. I'm going to paraphrase, but when I was looking at his meditation on the book of Tobit, he's writing about the book of Tobit. He's saying, this book, this narrative, is a reflection of the entire narrative of humanity and the divine. This is a reflection of, of, the, of the story, of the romance between, between humanity and the divine. It reflects, basically, this story alone reflects what the entire Bible is about. So his meditation to what the story that we're about to dive into today reflects the romance between us and our Heavenly Father. So if we understand and digest over the next five weeks at the aid and in life group, as we continue to, to go through in this narrative, you will understand the entire Bible. You will understand your role in, your, in how you are viewed from God. You will understand how we fit into the narrative between humanity and God. So, moving forward, let me start with this little funny picture. This is a picture from the year 1625 from the Netherlands. This story is from the year 720 BC. The story of Tobit is from the year 720 BC. Act number one. There are four characters. Tobit, Daddy Tobit, he's the dad. You have his son, Tobias. You have Tobit's wife, Anna. Let me put it in this order. Tobit and Anna, husband and wife. Tobit and Anna. Then they have one son named Tobias. And they also have a dog. Okay? So this is the picture. This is the four of them in a household. Okay? So here we are, the four of them. They are in exile in Nineveh. So they have been exiled from their homeland. And as they're kind of trying to make it homey as far as where they're in exile, Tobit's job, it's kind of a, not the greatest job in the world, but his job is actually to bury dead people. Tobit's job is to bury dead people. So Tobit's job, is, 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 is his career, is to, to, he felt as a Jewish man that, that, that part of the Jewish tradition, which obviously is a Christian tradition, is to honor the, the human body. If someone has departed, it's a disgrace to that person if the body is just left on the road. So to show honor and reverence to, toward that person and to his family, they need a proper burial. But some people don't get that. So his mission was to bury those who uh, are, are dead. So he's outside. He's, he's burying people, and then his wife says, Tobit, come, it's time for dinner, come on. T Tobias is ready, come on in, it's time for dinner. I, I'm done cooking, come on in. So Tobit comes in, and they're about to eat. And then Tobias says, Dad, I think somebody just died outside. It's kind of a weird story, but just go along with me. He says, Dad, somebody just died, so you need to go bury him. So Tobit says, okay, sorry, Anna, I need to go back outside. I need to bury this, I need to bury this person. He buries him. But he's exhausted. It's been a long day of work. He's put in extra hours, so Tobit is exhausted. So what does he do? He pulls up at a bench next to him, and he sits down. He's exhausted from, from working. Tobit sits down, and he's relaxing like this. And he looks up. He sees a cute little bird up there. All of a sudden, that bird pooped right in Tobit's eyes. Yeah. It gets weirder, believe me. Bird poop is now in Tobit's eyes. And not just that, Tobit goes blind from, 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 from the, 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 the bird poop that's in his eyes. Tobit goes blind. Imagine now, we all have rough days. We all have long days, and you're exhausted from a long day of work. You go home, nothing else you want to do other than just unwind, have dinner, and just turn on the TV or just scroll away right, on our phone. So we all want that. Imagine now 
you, you, you got some nice stuff in your eye and you end up going blind from it. What would your response be? What would your response be if you were Tobin? But what we will see is Tobit's hardship leads to hurt and healing. Tobit's hardship leads to hurt and healing. Here's something I have experienced personally, and I'm sure you have as well. Hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. People who are hurt give off a certain energy in which they will naturally hurt other people. Like if I've had a very difficult day, and I'm just annoyed, I'm agitated, I'm just, I'm just angry, and I go home, I'm hurt. What am I going to do? I'm going to give it to my wife. I'm going my, my, to vent. I'm going to get on her case for like the silliest little thing because I'm hurt. We have all experienced this either firsthand from our own pain that we end up hurting those around us indirectly, indirectly because of the pain within us. Or you have experienced, maybe you've been in a great mood one day and you come across somebody at work or at home that's in a poor mood and you're like, geez, what happened to you? And you don't want anything to do with that person because they're just lashing out on you for every little small thing because hurt people hurt people. And Tobit is no different. Tobit is no different. You would be annoyed after a long day of work and also you're blind and you don't know what tomorrow brings. So Tobit actually vents, because from his hurt, he actually vents to his wife and causes even more hurt. We continue. This is written in first person. This is chapter 2 of the book of Tobit. Then my wife, Anna, this is Tobit speaking, obviously. Then my wife, Anna, worked for hire at what women do. She would send her work to the owners, and they would pay her. So he's saying, so my, my wife, he's basically saying, my wife works. She does something. Most scholars would say that she uh, weaves stuff together, maybe baskets, who knows. But she weaves something, and most historians will say that's the case. So she's weaving something. Then my wife, Anna, worked for hire at what women do. She would send her work to the owners, and they would pay her. On one occasion, they paid her wa wages and also gave her a small goat. But when she returned to me, it began to bleat. Anybody know what the word bleat means, by the way? No? I had to look it up. The definition is the cry of a goat. I don't know why there has to be a specific word for a cry of a goat, but anyway. Anyway, so she got the coat. The goat, basically, it's her bonus. She did a good job, so, the owner, so her boss gave her a goat, but the goat started to bleat, started to cry. So, so I, Tobit, said to her, Anna, where did you get this, this goat from? Is it not stolen? Return it to the owners, for it is unlawful to eat what is stolen. But Anna replied, it was given to me as a gift. It was in addition to my wages. But I, Tobit, did not believe her, telling her to return it to its owners. His hurt has caused him not to even trust anything that came out of his wife. Instead of esteeming her, instead of valuing her, instead of lifting her up, saying, I'm proud of you. Awesome job. Like, I'm so proud of you that like, you got this bonus. This is cool. Instead of that, what does he say? Did you steal this? You probably did steal it. I want you to go return it. That's not nice. I, Tobit, blushed in embarrassment for her sake. I was embarrassed. I, Tobit, was embarrassed because of what my wife did. She's an embarrassment to me that she stole this. I blushed in embarrassment for her sake. So she answered and said to me, Are your acts of charity and righteous deeds lawful? Behold, you are a know-it-all. What is Anna, what, Anna now being hurt, she was expecting her husband to uplift her, 
and to value her and to, and to praise her for what she did. And, and, and then Tobit gives it to her because of his hurt. What does she say? She was in a good mood. All of a sudden, she went from a high mood because she got the bonus. Now it's being down here saying, oh, yeah, Tobit, you think you're an know-it-all? You think you're, you're, you're a good Jewish man because you do the right thing? You help bury people? You feel like you know it all? I do something right, and I get rewarded for my labor. And you think you're a know-it-all? Imagine now. You're blind. You're exhausted. Now there is division in your own marriage. What can be his outlet? What do you think even his prayer would look like if you are in the midst of this amount of pain? Blind, in despair, and even your own wife cannot even sympathize with you, and your wife is against you. How would you respond? Now I want us to see the most vulnerable, broken prayer of a man desiring to find hope, desiring to hold on to some type of hope. I want you to see how vulnerable, how open, how transparent his prayer is now to God. Then I wept in my sorrow, and with pain I prayed, saying, O Lord, you are righteous. Maybe you, but definitely not me. When there's pain and despair, I don't open my prayer by saying, Lord, you are the ethic of what is right. You are righteous. I don't begin with that. I jump into right inventing about my pain. But he begins by saying, you are righteous. He basically sets the order of where he is and where God is. He understands that I am limited and broken, and I am desiring to find life in the, the uncreated, eternal being, my Father. He understood that. Right from the get-go of his opening of his prayer. Oh, Lord, you are righteous. So, too, are all your works. All your ways are mercy and truth. Your judgments are true and just forever. Remember me and look upon me with favor. Do not punish me for my sins and my ignorance, nor those sins of my fathers which they committed against you. He's asking for forgiveness for his sins and even admitting that he is ignorant. But to add on top of that, he says, Lord, if I have committed any sins out of my own ignorance or even my, my dad and my granddad and those who have come before me, that he is wanting to take the weight and take ownership for the sins that they might have committed, and he wants to take it on himself. That he is wanting to carry that weight. He's wanting to step up in prayer as a man and say that I am carrying on the weight of those maybe who have, who have drifted away from God. That's on me, and I'm, I want to pray for them. This is why liturgically we pray for the salvation of the world. We pray for those, things bigger than ourselves. We take it upon us in our prayer. And, to, and Tobit is doing the same thing. Do not punish me for my sins or for my ignorance, nor those sins of my fathers which they committed against you, because they disobeyed your commands. So you gave us a spoil, captivity and death. You made us a byword of disgrace and among all the nations in which we were scattered. Now, now your judgments concerning my sins are many, and they are true, because I did them because I take ownership of my sins. I don't blame it on others. I don't play the victim role. Yeah, I do sin. I do screw up as a father and as a husband. He takes ownership. I did them, and so did my fathers, for we did not keep your commandments. Indeed, we did not walk in truth before you. 
Now do with me as is best before you. Do with me as best before you. In other words, liturgically, manage my life as deemed fit. Command that my spirit be taken up so I may be released and become soil, since it is better for me to die than to live. Time out. Is Tobit depressed? Yeah. Does his prayer sound suicidal? Yeah. It is better for me to die than to live. For I have heard false insults, and there is so much sorrow within me. Command that I be freed from distress to now enter into the eternal place. Do not turn your face away from me. What I love about his prayer, it is non a churchy prayer. He doesn't sit there being blind, being in a massive argument with his wife. He doesn't say, let us give thanks to the benefits and merciful God, the Father of our Lord, God, Jesus Christ. Thank you. you know, thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. It's the most non-churchy prayer. It's the most non-churchy prayer. You see his depression. You see his agony. You see his pain. To the point that it is suicidal. His prayer is suicidal. But he wraps it all by saying, manage my life as deemed fit. What gives him the strength, even him being so depressed, what is still rooting him is because he knows his purpose and he knows his identity. He knows who he is to God, his father. So in the midst of so much despair, he's holding on to that truth. He knows. He knows that he can come to his father with tremendous amount of pain and agony and depression but he holds on to one single truth, that I belong to him, and I am here for a mission. Yes, I desire to go to an eternal place. Yes, I desire to find eternal rest, because there's a better place waiting for me. Yes, he is praying that, but he's also holding on to knowing that he is here for a mission. He is here as a sojourner. He is here as a tourist, and he has a mission. What, 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 what makes him stable in his prayer is knowing who he is to his heavenly Father. I now want to share with you the meditation of the early church. How did the early church elaborate on this prayer? What did the church have to say about suicide and depression about this prayer? I want to share with you the writing of a North African bishop. His name is St. Augustine. His name is St. Augustine. And he, and he said this around the year 400 AD, his meditation to Tobit's prayer. Who is so absurd? Who is so absurd and blinded by contentious, strong opinions as to be audacious enough to affirm that in the midst of the calamities of this mortal state, God's people, or even one single saint, does live or has ever lived or shall ever live without tears or pain? Let me break it down because I had to read that five times myself. But let me break it down for you, what he's saying. He's saying, who is so absurd? Who is so blinded? Who has enough guts? For maybe the saints who have come before us, the saints now, you and me, and the saints who will come, uh, come after us. Who has the guts enough to say 
that, that, we, that we will go through this world without tears or pain? Who, who, who is superficial enough to say that we will go through this world without any tears or pain? He's saying, come on, let's be real. This world is tough. This world is painful. Who would sit there to say everything is fine and I have my life perfect? Who, who has the guts to say that? Who is audacious enough? Who's absurd enough to say that? Who, who has enough guts to say that? With all the calamities of this mortal world, with all the issues that exist in this world, who has the guts to say that? Who has the guts to say that? St. Augustine continues. For as the same fire, for as the same fire causes gold to glow brightly, the same violence of affliction proves, purges, clarifies the good, but ruins and exterminated the wicked. And thus, it is that same affliction. The wicked detest God and blaspheme, while the good pray and praise. What is he saying? Just as gold cleanses out dirt and brings out pure gold, that same, that same fire in our world, in our lives, in our struggles, in our pain, in our depression, in our hopelessness, that same fire will cleanse us. The wicked, they will detest God and blaspheme God. God, why on earth have you done this? Why have, what, what have I done to deserve this? They'll, blaspheme, they'll, they'll, they'll point the finger back at God. But the good will pray and praise God. It is so hard. It is so hard in the midst of our pain to say thank God and to, to praise him. Can we be vulnerable and be open of our hopelessness and our pain as Tobit was 100%. But we can also say in the midst of it that you are righteous, you are good. Manage my life as deemed fit and I praise you that I can still hold onto both in my prayer. My, my stress, my agony, my anxiety, yes, come with vulnerability to your heavenly father with that. But also I need to praise him because somehow I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. But this fire, I know it's cleansing me to make me brighter than gold. I hate it. I hate it. Take it away from me. It is better for me to die than to live, as in the words of Saint uh, Tobit. But I know this is for my good. I know this is fire that will cleanse me and is cleansing me. That is the end of Act 1. The Bible's not broken into Acts, but to my mind, this is, I, I like to break it up into a, a play. So that way, maybe if Hollywood gets a hand over this, maybe I can get some... Uh, percentage of the prophet. So act, that's act number one. Act number two is this. On the same day in Ekbatana of Midia, Sarah, Sarah now is our, is, 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 so now we have Tobit, uh, we have Tobit, Anna, and Tobias, their son, and their dog. That's, that's act one. We put that aside. Now we move into act two. You guys with me? Everyone good with me? Sorry. I know this is different than what we've done in the eight in the past, but you're, I promise you, this is a great story. Act number two. Now we jump to Sarah. This is I know this sounds cruel, but to me this is hilarious. On the same day, in Ekbatana of Media, Sarah, the daughter of Ragul, happened to be insulted by her father's maids. She was married to seven husbands. One more time. She was married to seven husbands. She was married to seven husbands, but before they could be with her as a wife, Asmodeus, the evil demon, killed them. Imagine being married seven times. You finish the wedding, you finish the reception. 
You go up to your hotel room. And then he dies. Talk about a blow to your, to your, your <laughs> I mean, to your confidence. Your wedding night. The consummation of the wedding. And Sarah's getting ready. And then boom, she looks on the bed. There's the seventh husband dead. It's a blow. So Asmodeus, the evil demon, killed them. So they said to her, the maid said to her, do you not recollect that you strangled these husbands? Like they're saying, man, what are you, what are you guys doing in, in the hotel room? What are you guys doing upstairs? Are you strangling them? Like there's no way. One, two, okay, but, but seven? Oh, what, what are you doing? You have already had seven husbands, but you received no profit from any of them. Therefore, why are you punishing us? Like, why? Like, why do we have to keep on bringing down the seventh dead body from upstairs? Why? If they are dead, just go with them. Go with them. May we never see a son or daughter of yours. But when she heard this, she was so distressed that she considered hanging herself. But she said, Sarah, she said, I am the only one of my father. If I do this, it will be a disgrace to him and I will bring down his old age with sorrow into Hades. So she prayed by her window and said. So what, what is lifting her up from, from suicidal thoughts is her reminding herself that I'm the, the only offspring of my parents. If I do this, I'm bringing much, so much disgrace to them and so much pain to them. And now as she comes near her window, see now her prayer, her open, broken, vulnerable prayer. Blessed are you, O Lord, my God. Blessed is your holy and precious name unto the ages. Unto the ages. She understood. Again, she is limited, but there is one who transcends time, who she is connecting with. Blessed are you unto the ages. Liturgically, don't we say that? Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto the ages of all ages. Every time we say these words and pray these words, we are admitting that we are limited, but we give glory to the triune God who exists outside of the dimensions of time that you and I know. And this is our opening prayer. Blessed is your holy and precious name unto the ages. May all your works bless you forever. Now, O Lord, I offer myself completely to you. Command that I be released from the land that I may not hear such disgrace anymore. There's a lot of similarities so far between her prayer and Tobit's prayer. Oh Lord, you know that I am innocent of any sin with a man. I have not defiled my name, nor the name of my father in the land of my captivity. What is she saying? She said, God, I know you have given humanity, you have given me a, such a powerful and fragile and delicate gift of sexuality. And I, I cannot wait. And I thank you for that. But come on, you know that I have honored that gift, that I knew that it is for the union and sacrament of marriage. It's been so tough, don't get me wrong, but I have honored you. I have honored this beautiful and cherished gift that you have given me. I have honored myself and I have honored you for this beautiful gift of sex that you have given me. I have not done anything wrong with that. You know that I am innocent of any sin with a man. I have not defiled my name nor the name of my father in the land of my captivity. I am my father's only offspring. He has no other child who will be his heir. Neither does he have a brother close at hand, nor an adopted son that I might keep myself as a wife to him. Seven of my husbands have already perished. What should I live for? 
But if it does not seem good to you to kill me, command that I be looked upon with favor, and that mercy be shown to me, so I may no longer hear disgrace. What do you do when you're broken? What's your response? Is it, a, 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 is it an outlet? Is it a habit that you go to to relieve that stress, to relieve, to, to relieve that, that pain? What do you do when you are broken? What do you do when life is in the dumps? We'll continue the story. But you will notice that vulnerability of both Tobit and Sarah in their prayers. This, I love this icon. Obviously, these are, obviously, Tobit and Sarah are not together, but this icon is depicting the brokenness of both. Sarah praying next to her window about her brokenness of her issues in her, her marriage or lack thereof, and Tobit praying uh, with his brokenness. And you see such a real authentic prayer of, of, of despair. What do you and I do when we're broken? And see how powerful their prayer, their vulnerability, them just kind of yelling out to God. I highly doubt that they were praying this, saying, Lord, you know, blessed are you unto the ages. No, I'm sure there was yelling involved. I'm sure there was crying involved. But they held on to one fact. The, act, the end of Act 1 and Act 2 ends with this sentence, with this verse. The prayer of both, the prayer of both, Sarah and uh, Tobit, the prayer of both was heard in the presence of the great glory of Raphael, and he was sent to heal the two of them. Do we believe in guardian, uh, do we believe in guardian angels? 100%. 100%. And here's one evidence of that. Your prayer is heard by your guardian angel who watches over you who's there to support you and to lift you when you are in despair. You have been appointed a guardian angel that oversees you, that cares for you, that gives a report of you to God. Vulnerability leads to healing. What happens to Tobit's eyes and his blindness and his despair? What happens to, to, to Sarah? Does she try to get married an eighth time? We'll continue the story next Sunday. Let's stand up and pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we all have pain. Just as St. Augustine has said, that we, it, we would be lying to ourselves if we feel that life is always perfect all the time. But Lord, in the midst of our pain, what is our response? What is our reflex to our pain? Is it an unhealthy ha habit? Is it to dismiss the pain? Is it to keep busy? Is it try to cover it up? But Lord, we want to come to you with the same spirit of vulnerability as Tobit came to you, the same vulnerability and boldness as Sarah came to you, that in the midst of their pain, they had no answers to nothing. And it's despair upon despair that came to both of them. But they came to lean towards you. They came to cry to you. Lord, some of us in this room are in tremendous amount of pain and despair. May we come to you 
with a heart of vulnerability to seek healing, to s desire to connect you. Maybe some of us, life is smooth and no issues right now. But as St. Augustine said, it's a matter of time because we live in a world filled with hardships. I pray that for myself and for, our, for everyone here, our entire church family, we can build the, the muscle to come to you. We can build the rhythm to our life that in the midst of brokenness, we can come to just to talk to you, to be open with you, to come to you with our hurt, with our pain. Because we know, Lord, that, that you are watching over us. Our guardian angel is next to us to hear our prayers, to support us. Through the prayers of all your saints, Lord, hear us as we pray. Thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you, guys. I want to give a last, last, last.